Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. Merry uh, seventh day of Christmas. There's 12 of them. Don't forget that. Keep, uh, keep celebrating. Don't give up celebrating yet. Um, and Happy New Year. I appreciate you guys being here. I know that uh, the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's is, can be a hard one to get to church for, um, but it's good to see you here. So we are going to be keeping the holiday spirit alive a little bit longer here at St. Paul's, and um, we're going to be continuing the When the Word Became Flesh series this morning, and we're going to be considering the significance of the visit of the Magi. Most nativity scenes have at least three elements, right? Element number one, the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Element number two, the shepherds. And element number three, the magi, sometimes called the wise men. And if you were here on Christmas Eve, hopefully you remember that I talked a little bit about the significance of the shepherds. At best, shepherds were thought of as unremarkable working class folks. At worst, they were looked down upon as people who um, couldn't get away from the sheep long enough to participate in religious activities. So they were often thought of as kind of unspiritual or, you know, looked down upon because their work made it so they were dirty all the time looking after the sheep. And so the fact that God chooses shepherds to be the first ones that hear the announcement from the heavenly host that the Messiah has arrived is a sign that God is pleased to be identified with the humble and the people who might not always be looked upon um, as having the best reputation, the people who might be disrespected in society. God is still pleased to be identified with them. And then the shepherds also remind us that Jesus is the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world, and that he is the great shepherd who guides us towards eternal life. So what about the Magi? What does their presence in our nativities tell us? What is, it, what is that revealing to us? Well, that's the question for today. So let's start by looking at the story. If you want to follow along, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you again for this special time of year and everything that it reminds, reminds us of, everything that it reveals. Uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning and hearts to receive whatever it is that your spirit wants to reveal to us, wants to teach us. We are open to hear from you, Lord. And all God's people said, amen. All right, chapter 2, Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, 
and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, so Matthew tells us that Magi came from the east to worship Jesus. Now, I, I, I'm sorry if this bursts anyone's bubble, you know, the image you have in your imagination, but they almost certainly did not come on the night that Jesus was born, right? It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Magi came, not when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We don't know exactly when they came, um, but Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were still in, Beth in Bethlehem, so most scholars say it would have been sometime in the first two years of Jesus's life, because they only spent a certain amount of time in Bethlehem before um, eventually ending up in, in Nazareth. So our nativity scenes are not entirely historically accurate. Um, I don't think that needs to bother us. I don't think we need to get real rigid about that and say, oh, we got to take the wise men out. Because what the nativity really is, is it is an artistic symbol of what both Matthew and Luke tell us about the earliest time in Jesus's life, right? And as a artistic symbol, it's very valuable. Um, so, what is a magi? I actually didn't ask that question correctly because magi is plural. So the question really should be, what is a magus? What is a magus? Well, of course, sometimes magi is translated as wise men. Wise men. But that can be misleading uh, because there are certainly examples in scripture of magi that are not wise. And I would submit to you an example from the book of Acts, chapter 13. There is a magus who is opposing the apostles. And the apostle Paul says to him, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. So it probably doesn't make any sense to call this magus a wise man, right? So wise man is not the best translation, but the reason that magus or magi gets translated that way sometimes is because where the magi were from, they were seen as people who possessed special knowledge. Um, they were thought of as the people that knew the mysteries of the world. 
that word magi, it comes from the same word as magic. Right? So they were kind of thought of as magical people, people who had that access to the mysteries of the world. And that could be for a couple reasons. It could be because they were more learned and educated than the average person, the people that actually had the privilege of giving their lives to studying the world. Uh, but it could also be because they were involved in things like divination and sorcery and astrology, which were activities that God prohibited in the Mosaic Law. So again, it doesn't really make much sense to translate magi as wise men because they could be engaged in activities that were forbidden by God and therefore were not wise, right? But for where they came from, they were thought of as the keepers of the secrets, the magical people, either because they were very educated or because they were involved in this, these kinds of occultic practices. So, even though it is uh, not accurate to call a magi a wise man, these particular magi were wise because they were able to recognize Jesus as someone who was worthy of worship. They have seen a sign in the stars that the king of the Jews has been born. In those days, pagan people, and by pagan I mean non-Jewish, pagan people assumed that the rise and fall of kings would be marked in the heavens by celestial events, by events in the stars. And they, these wise men, these magi, have interpreted a particular event in the stars as pointing to the arrival of the king of the Jews. Now, why would they do that? Besides the fact that magi tended to look at the stars for signs, right? Why would the magi, these people from the east, be concerned about the king of the Jews? Well, I want to suggest a possibility. I cannot prove this, but I think it's a very interesting possibility to consider. About 600 years before the birth of Christ, Jerusalem was destroyed by people from the east, the Babylonians. And when they destroyed Jerusalem, they took many Jewish people into captivity and brought them to Babylon. This is what is known in the story of the Bible as the exile. It's a very important theme in the Bible, the exile. And the book of Daniel, this is an Old Testament book, and it tells the story of one of these Jewish captives, Daniel. And Daniel was a man who was faithful to God. Um, he, he remained faithful even in this foreign land. And he ended up gaining a lot of influence and authority in Babylon, kind of like Joseph in Egypt, if you know that story. And uh, you, you might be familiar with Daniel. We looked at his story a few years ago uh, here at St. Paul's. He's the guy that was thrown in the lion's den and yet miraculously survived. Now listen to what Daniel chapter 2, verse 48 says. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Magi. And the book of Daniel describes these wise men as 
the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers of Babylon. So, if we put this together, right, about 600 years before Jesus' arrival, Daniel was put in charge of Babylonian magi. The people who studied the stars. And Daniel also made some very specific prophecies about when the Jewish Messiah would come, which are recorded in the book of Daniel. So it is not far-fetched to think that the reason that these magi from the east came to Jerusalem was because of things that Daniel and other Jews like him had said centuries earlier when they were in exile in their land. And I think that's a really beautiful thought, isn't it? That the people who once conquered the Jews are now coming to honor the Jewish king because of what they learned from their captives. And I think that should be a reminder to all of us that, you know, with our lives, we are contributing, each one of us, to a story that is bigger and longer than we can see or know, at least in our lifetime, right? There are things that you may do with your life now that don't have a payoff for centuries. It's a wild thought, right? But it's true, especially how you respond to hardship and suffering in your life, right? Because Daniel's a great example of that, right? Being brought into captivity in a foreign land, brought into exile, and yet his faithfulness, if the story I'm telling is true, which I, I have reason to believe it is, right? His faithfulness leads to this payoff centuries later. The more that we can learn through the eyes of faith to see our lives in that way, the healthier we're going to be, right? We're, we're all contributing to a story that is longer and bigger than we can see. And not only are these magi coming to honor Jesus, right, but it says that they come to worship him. They know that this is a very special child, even though they are not Jewish, even though they've probably been involved in some of the practices that God forbids, they still recognize this person deserves our worship. Now, if they came from the area of Babylon, Google tells me that that trip was 900 miles. 900 miles Gentile magi traveled in order to honor the king of the Jews. And so the presence of the magi in our nativities should be seen as something that is deeply ironic. And by ironic, I mean it's not what people would have expected. Magi from the east are traveling vast distances to honor the newborn king, and they are able to see him for who he is, and they are even overjoyed, that's the word it uses, right? Overjoyed to find him. But Herod, the king of Judea, the guy who should be excited about this, right? He's not overjoyed about the birth of Jesus. He is disturbed by what the Magi say. And not only him, but we're told that all of Jerusalem, along with him, is disturbed. Now, does that mean that every person that lived in Jerusalem was disturbed by the birth of Jesus? Well, I don't think that's what that means. 
for one reason, plenty of people in Jerusalem weren't aware that Jesus had been born, right? But I think that Jerusalem is being used here as a shorthand for those who had power and authority who were based in Jerusalem, right? Kind of like the way that we might say, well, all of Washington, D.C. was upset about this. We don't mean every citizen of Washington, D.C., but we mean, you know, Congress or the politicians or whatever, right? Matthew is saying <clears throat> that those who were in Jerusalem who had power and control were bothered by what the Magi were saying. And that is a theme throughout Jesus' life, right? That the people in Jerusalem do not receive him, those who have power and authority, but they want to get rid of him. Now, something that I want to make clear, I think <clears throat> this is an important clarification. The people who rejected Jesus, those who were disturbed in Jerusalem, did not reject him because they were Jewish. I want to be very clear about that. The first followers of Jesus were Jewish. The 12 disciples were Jewish, right? The Apostle Paul was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Those who rejected Jesus did not reject Jesus because they were Jewish, but because they were blinded by things like pride and greed and envy and the desire for power and revenge. And King Herod, in particular, is so blinded that he plans to kill Jesus. Right? He says, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Do you think he's sincere? If you know the story, you know that he is not sincere. He has no interest in worshiping Jesus. Why would he go from being disturbed about the news to then saying, oh, I want to go worship him? Right? No, as we will find out later... Um, he has plans to kill Jesus. That's why he wants to know where he is. And so once again, we see the irony, right? The Jewish king, who lives six miles from Bethlehem, wants to kill Jesus, but the pagan astrologers who have traveled hundreds of miles have come to worship. What the Gospel of Matthew is showing us through this story, is that Jesus is for the whole world. He's for the whole world. He's for the Jews, too. But not just the Jews. And many people are going to realize this. People were realizing it from the moment that he was born. The Magi are just the beginning, and they're a sign of what's to come. They're also a sign that some people who are thought to be outsiders, are actually going to become insiders in the kingdom of God. And some who think themselves to be insiders will show themselves to actually be outsiders. And we still see this dynamic sometimes in the world today. Right? Sometimes people who are outwardly religious are actually prideful and obsessed with power and money and really deep down don't have any interest in following Jesus' teaching at all. And on the other hand, some people who at first might seem far from Jesus are actually ready to follow him and worship him. As Jesus himself said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. 
so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, we're told that the wise men come and bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. By the way, this is probably the reason that tradition has three magi, because they bring three gifts. It doesn't actually say anywhere in the text that there's three magi, um, but you know it's con convenient with artistic interpretations to have three magi each holding a different gift. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what might be the significance of those gifts? We could just say, well, they're just nice gifts. But throughout the history of the church, there have been people who have offered interpretations that there might be a deeper meaning intended by the Holy Spirit uh, in these three gifts. And there was a church father known as Origen who offered an interpretation, which I find very interesting. Uh, he said that the gold represents that Jesus is a king, right? Because gold is associated with royalty. Um, the frankincense represents that Jesus is God, that he is divine, because frankincense was burned in the temple worship. Um, if you go into certain churches today, you know, Eastern Orthodox churches, Roman Catholic churches, right, they still burn incense. And the myrrh represents death, because Jesus would die a sacrificial death. Myrrh was used in the embalming of a corpse, and uh, we see that in the Gospels when it talks about Jesus' body being prepared for burial. It says that myrrh was used. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I had never heard this interpretation before, and something I didn't realize until this week is that the most famous Christmas carol about the wise men, or um, the magi, we three kings, includes this interpretation. Um, now, I, I like that song, We Three Kings. Um, the title is a little problematic because, again, we don't know for sure that there were three, and they weren't kings, right? <laughs> they, they were magi. Um, but anyway, uh, there, are, there is a verse for each one of the gifts that connects it with the things in Origen's interpretation, right? So look at this. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never, over us all to reign. Right? So there's the connection between gold and kingship. And then you get frankincense to offer have I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising, all men raising, worship him, God most high. Right? So frankincense is being offered to a deity nigh, which means a God who is near, right? So there's that connection between the incense and divinity. And then the verse for myrrh, I don't think I had ever heard until I looked up the lyrics. Uh, and it's a shame that it always gets cut because it's a powerful verse. Myrrh is mine, it's bitter perfume, breathes a life of gathering gloom, Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. Right? The connection between myrrh and death. Myrrh as the embalming um, uh, perfume for a body. And then the last verse brings this all together when it says, Glorious now, behold him arise. The resurrection, right? King and God and sacrifice. 
Alleluia, alleluia, heaven to earth replies. So, king and God and sacrifice, right? Those are the three things that Origen saw gold and frankincense and myrrh as being uh, represented by the gifts. So, when the Magi deliver their gifts, it's a sign that many people throughout the world, people from near and very far away, are going to come to recognize Jesus as king, as God, and as sacrifice. Sacrifice for our sins. Now, there's one other thing that I would like us to see in the visit of the Magi. I said that the Magi weren't necessarily wise, but they were thought of as wise among non-Jewish people at the time. And they weren't only sorcerers and astrologers, but they were also simply the educated people of the time. So these were the doctors, the professors, um, the scientists, at least the closest thing to the scientists uh, of that time. So when they bow down and worship Jesus, we should not just see people bowing down, but we should see the wisdom of the world bowing down to the wisdom of God. Through the Magi, the wisdom of the world bows down to the wisdom of God. Remember, Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Logos incarnate. And one of the ways I've, I've used to describe what the Logos is, is the wisdom that made the cosmos, right? The wisdom in bodily form. So, if you want to put the, the moment with the Magi in perspective, imagine a surgeon a Yale professor, and a quantum physicist bowing down to Jesus. Bowing down before a baby in a manger. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. That is the deeper truth that is being revealed here. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea from what I just said there, okay? Pursuing the knowledge that comes from science and, and medicine and history is very valuable. Um, as Christians, we should not be people that uh, think that those pursuits are, are not worthy of our time. I think I encourage all of us to be learning throughout our entire lives about those kinds of things. But we should do that while also recognizing that the deepest wisdom is found in Jesus. All the knowledge that we can acquire is actually quite dangerous apart from the wisdom revealed in Christ. Because the wisdom found in him tells us that the deepest wisdom looks like humility, love, and sacrifice. Right? The wisdom that we gain through, um, through knowledge, through the study of sciences and the arts, that can teach us how to build a nuclear bomb, right? But it can't tell us whether it's right to build one or what to do with it, right? This is the wisdom that comes to us through God. 
The wisdom of the world has often considered the wisdom of God to be foolishness. The idea that, you know, God could humble himself and become a baby lying in a manger? That's crazy. Would an almighty God really do such a thing? Plenty of people would say that's nuts, right? Would, a, would an almighty God really subject himself to rejection and crucifixion and death? That's crazy. Would, it, would an almighty God really tell us to love our enemies and to forgive and to put away our swords? That's crazy. But the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of the world. And sometimes even the professors and the scientists and the doctors and the philosophers are able to recognize this, just like the Magi. So may we have eyes to see that the greatest wisdom of all is found in Jesus. And may we bow down to that wisdom and may it transform our lives. Amen. Lord, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, the truth about what real wisdom looks like, to recognize wisdom as embodied in your Son, in Jesus Christ, in the humility and the love and the sacrifice uh, that he, he lived. Um, Lord, I, I pray um, that you would help us not to be captured by the wisdom of the world uh, that would often mock uh, the wisdom of humility, love, and sacrifice. Um, Father, uh, give us eyes to see things as they truly are. We thank you for entering into our world. Uh, we thank you uh, that, that you have given us uh, eyes to see, like the Magi, um, the truth of who you are and the goodness of who you are, the wisdom of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.